If you want to, go ahead and open up to Judges. Um, And we're going to be in chapter 10 uh, and 11 tonight. The end of chapter 10, I should say, and then 11. Um, Just for the sake of our our time and the last few weeks that we have here in Judges, I wanted us to get through to a certain part. So we're going to kind of fast forward. Um, We finished the story of Gideon um, last week. Um, And we're going to skip over his son and then two other judges that happened in between um, there. Uh, Suffice it to say, his son was not a good leader. Um, Things did not go well. Uh, He murdered his brothers. Um, He manipulated the people to take control and um, and met uh, met a a tragic demise. And so um, things are not going well. Things are not looking good in Israel. And as a whole... Um, we have returned again or maybe kind of continued in um, our idol worship. That, that is what the people of God are doing. They've turned away from him and they are focused on um, Baal. And that is, that is where we find um, this next chapter in, uh, in Jephthah. That they have been placed under oppression again because the Lord is angry with his people. And, um, and so they call out for someone to save them and the Lord essentially responds no, and he leaves them in their oppression for a time and for a season, um, and that's where we end up at the end of chapter 10. And so um, the, the Ammonites had uh, camped in, in Gilead. This is Israelite-controlled area. It's a, it's a rather large area, um, and they've, they've moved in, and they've encamped, and they look very threatening. The people are, are threatened by their presence there, and this is just east of the Jordan River. So where we were talking about Gideon right along the Jordan uh, River, um, most of this story takes place a little further to the east. And uh, the Israelites, or, or probably more specifically the Israelites that were residing in that area, come together. They, they see the threat coming, they're nervous about it, and so they gather together, but they have a problem. And that problem, at least as they see it, is that they have no leader. There's, there's no one there to command their army. Um, there's no one there to give them any kind of direction. And so the elders uh, have met together. And here we, we see the first major mistake um, in the story. Notice where they turn, uh, where they look for their help in this time of need. This is not a time of repentance. It's not a time of fasting. They, they look for a man. And, and what's more than that, they don't, they don't even seek out God's guidance on what man. Right? They begin putting together uh, the idea of what they think they need. They determine what seems uh, to fit in their eyes, uh, what is going to deliver them from that threat. And then um, th- this jump from chapter 10 to, to chapter 11, it reminds me of, of a movie. Like, and I don't mean like a specific movie, but you know how in movies, particularly like an action movie, they, they define the problem. Right? They, there's some kind of impending doom, and they come up with a solution, but they realize no one's probably crazy enough to execute that, that solution. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to do it. It's a suicide mission. They wouldn't possibly do Who would do this? And then one guy in the room gets a smirk on his face, and then boom, cut scene. Right? It, goes to, uh, it goes to this guy who's doing something totally unrelated to what they were talking. He's working on his motorcycle, or he's jumping off a mountain, or something, you know, something big. Oh, and that's it. That's the guy. Well, little did you know, Hollywood directors got that from chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Judges. They borrowed that. So that's what happens. The elders are like, who is going to lead us? Cut scene. Background 
to Jephthah. And we, we begin to learn a little bit more about him. Um, and it begins to describe kind of his, his origin. Uh, as you learn about him, you find out he's the outcast in his family. That his father does have legitimate sons with his wife. Uh, he is a son born of a prostitute. And so those other sons push him out. Uh, they drive him out. They deny him the potential for his inheritance. And so he moves kind of up north and east, which would really kind of be just the wilderness area. Um, and he begins to hang around with what Scripture only defines as worthless fellows. Um, so he doesn't have a good crowd around him. And so as you read on, you kind of wonder, like, why would, they, why would they pick him? Why is he the guy that they're going to go to and, and try to recruit? Well, we see it very briefly in verse 1. He's a mighty warrior. That's it. That's the, that is the only qualification uh, that he had. Everything else would say, this is, this is not the guy for the job. This is some random guy surviving with basically a crowd of thugs in the wilderness. Um, but he knows how to fight. And that's at this point, in the midst of threat, that's what they care about. Um, he wasn't raised up by God. He was not surrounded by helpful people. He was not of great lineage. Um, he, he simply knows how to fight. And so they decide to reach out to him. He has that reputation. They reach out to him. This is a clear departure from the method of the leader of Israel being, being raised up in this time. Um, like for Gideon, for example, um, of all of his mistakes, at the very least, we are, we are clear that he was commissioned by God. Right? God visited him, called him, sent him a message. Um, most of the other judges uh, in, in this book have some reference to being called by God, being raised up by God. He is involved um, in their recruitment and their coming to leadership. That is gone here. That, that doesn't exist here. Um, all that happens is this group of men decide they need somebody who, can, who knows how to battle. They don't care if he was with God or, or ordained by God or anything of that nature. And so they, they decide to approach him, and when, he, when they do, he doesn't, he doesn't just jump on board, right? And that's what happens when you're, when you're dealing with men and not with God's will, right? He doesn't want to just go save the day because it's the right thing to do. He sees his opportunity. He's, he's in control now. Previously, he got kicked out, and he gets to have that great moment where they come kind of groveling back to him, hey, we need you now. And so he feels like he's in control He's not worried about the Ammonites. He's been surviving on his own. This is, this is technically, he could just say, that's not my problem. But he decides to take advantage of the situation and negotiate. I'll come help you, but I want something in return. And he wants to be the ruler. He wants the power. He wants the influence over the people and everything that comes with it. And those are his terms. If I come back with you and I win, I'm your leader. You're going to listen to me, do what I say, and, and treat me. As such, and the elders are in a place where they're so desperate, they don't even argue. They don't even have a negotiation back and forth. They simply agree. They say, as God is our witness, that's what we'll do. We, we will make that happen. And so, um, before we move on in the story, I want you to look at verse 9. And I want to note something that I think is important, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later on. Verse 9 says, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and this is, this is the important part, and the Lord gives them over to me, 
I will be your head. So what, what he's focused on right there is, is getting what he wants, right? Right, throwing out his, his demands. But he does say something that is good, right? He says, if the Lord gives it into my hand, he seems to almost acknowledge that God is in control. God is the one who can give delivery. And so we have to ask the question, is he acting under a desire to serve God? Am I, am I being too harsh on him, right? He does say the Lord there. Um, but here's where I really think he is. And one, one author describes it this way. He says, Jephthah represented a strange mixture of faith and foolishness. Right, because he is going to mix, he's going to say the name of God several times in this passage. He's going to use that name. But when you look at his actions, they don't line up. We're going we're to see in his actions, and if you know the story where we're headed, you're going to know he's not, this is not a person who's familiar with God. And so here's what I think is happening. I don't, I don't think he's intentionally uh, deceiving us. I don't think he's trying to make, make it look like he's more godly than he is. I think he thinks he is that godly. I think he thinks he is faithful. And he doesn't realize that his foolishness and his selfishness has gotten caught up in his faith. And he doesn't understand that he's, he doesn't even see that he's being that hypocritical. Because all of these, all of these references to God, all of this appeal to God for victory um, doesn't line up with, with what he does and the decisions that he makes um, as he moves forward. So see that and notice, notice what's going on in his heart there. And then... Obviously, I want us to ask, is that us? Is there, is there a part of that that happens in our hearts as well? So as we move story for, forward in the story past verse 9, um, the terms of his involvement have been settled, and he begins. He begins his, his leadership role, um, and he starts by sending messengers to the, the king of Ammon. He begins to talk back and forth, and, and really they argue. And what they're arguing is, who is the rightful owner of this land, who has a rightful claim over this area. They're, they're both saying that they have it. Now that should sound kind of familiar because remember where we are. We're in the Middle East. We're on the east side of Israel. That, that argument is happening at this very moment. Uh, not the same people, but that, but that argument is still happening, right? And so they begin to, he makes these arguments for why it's their land. He just throws a speech out there. He says, First of all, we want it in battle. So if we want it in battle, it's ours. Who are you to argue with me about it? And he kind of, he kind of throws out this idea that Israel was the, um, the kid who was picked on. Like we didn't start the fight, but we finished it kind of thing. Like you guys started the fight, and then we just happened to win. So you can't complain about that. And then he, and then he appeals to divine uh, nature that God said that we should take this land. So if God says we should do it, it's rightfully ours. Um, he's, he's put that into play. And then, then he just makes kind of a common sense argument. He says, it's been 300 years. Why is this the first time that we're, that we're fighting over this? Right? This has been a, a long time. Why are we dealing with this just now? Are you, not, are you better than the kings before you? Why didn't they say anything about this? Um, but Jephthah wasn't recruited for his diplomacy. Right? Remember, we know why he was brought in. Because he could get in a brawl and win. That, that's what he's there for. He's not there to, to win a diplomatic argument. I, I don't think there's any, I, I can't see a scenario where he thought the king was just going to go, you know what, that's a great point. Let's, let's go home. Guys, this is, this is their land. I, I don't see a scenario where that, that happens here. 
Um, and so he finishes it, and he finishes it with one of the only helpful, accurate things that he says. Um, he says, the Lord is going to decide. The Lord will decide between Israel and Ammon whose land this is. And he doesn't mean that they're going to decide in a flip of a coin. Right? That's a declaration of war. But he is throwing out this idea that God is the one who will decide. And whoever he favors is going to win this war. And, and obviously he, he thinks it's them. Uh, he, he speaks that with confidence. And so what we see is him rightly pointing to God as the judge of this situation. Of who will win. He, he has a brief moment of true faith in the Lord. You don't make a claim like that unless you're confident in the outcome. He wouldn't have said that if he thought God wasn't with them and that they weren't going to win. And so you've got two things that, that make up the shining moment for Jephthah. You have, you have this statement right here, him rightly saying that God is the judge of what is right and wrong here. And then you have the fact that in a few verses he's going to win. Right? He's going to actually deliver the people from the oppression of the Ammonites. Those two things are his bright and shining moment. Okay? It's brief. It doesn't last very long. But that's why he was listed. That's why he's listed in, uh, in Hebrews 11. In the list of the heroes of faith. We talked about it with Gideon too. This moment right here is why he's listed there. Because God used him, enables and uses him in order to defeat the Ammonites. We don't get, in this scenario, we don't get a lot of detail um, about the battles uh, other than to say he just makes his way through it. He goes from place to place seemingly kind of in a hurry um, and, and takes care of it. Um, he, he knocks them down, knocks them off their feet um, in, in a way that they could not, they were not going to continue their oppression. Like he, he took care and settled that matter. And so he does well in that regard but not without making a mistake in the midst of it. And so, very brief, bright and shining moment, mistake after mistake. And the next thing that we see is that given that we already know he's someone who likes to negotiate, he likes to cut deals, he makes a deal or attempts to make a deal with God. And he says if God will grant him victory, then he's going to offer up a burnt offering. So look at, look at verse 31. I think it's 31 there. Read through that really quick. That's, that's where he is. That's where he's making that argument. Now, I have a, a question, a quick poll of translations. So there, does it say, when it says, uh, I will offer up uh, whatever comes out of the house first or whoever? So does anybody have whatever in their translation? Okay. Does anybody have whoever? There's one. So I think, is that the Holman? Which one is that? The Holman doesn't have that? Okay, I think it's the new, it's the new, it's not the Holman anymore, but Christian Standard. I think that's the only one I know of that has, that has whoever. Um, but that becomes important. If you know the story, that's important. Um, the problem is, not a problem, but for us, translating it either works. Grammatically, we can't see a difference between whatever and whoever there. Um, and so we, we have a hard time getting into his mindset of what he intended when he said that. If you read the Christian Standard Version, you know he intends what's going to happen. Uh, most other version, versions will say whatever. But regardless of what he says and what he intends there, 
the vow itself, with, without all the other stuff that goes with it, the vow itself is a mistake. The vow itself is sinful, right? Because for one, it's unnecessary, right? Pre- previously, it said the Lord had rushed upon him. The Lord was already working in him. There was no risk of failing. So, so why backtracking? Why the problem now of, now I'm nervous. I was super confident before when I was talking to the king. Why am I having problems now? It's because he had a lot riding on it. I mean, put yourself in his position. He had spent, you know, a big portion of his life as an outcast. His family kicked him out. They stole his inheritance, or they denied him his inheritance. Right? He'd lived in the wilderness surviving on his own, and now he has a chance to be the most important guy in town. So he, he's got a lot riding on this. So you, although we want to say, man, he lost faith here, which he did, we can also kind of understand, we've, we've been in that place before, if something's big things are riding on it, it's pretty difficult to sit comfortable in what the Lord is doing. We have to fight for that. It doesn't come naturally to us. So he makes, he makes this problematic vow as a sign of, of him losing faith. Another problem with it is that he seems, to, he seems to write this out as if the offering that he was going to make is a reward for God. right? As, as if he could bring something that adds value to God. It's more than just an act of worship in response to something God had done. Um, that there's really not a way. He's most likely thinking here, God, you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. Right? He just doesn't have a good understanding of, of what, a, what an offering is really for. Even if he had meant it as, as an act of worship, that would also be suggesting that if they lose the battle, then I won't worship you. Which, which as we know, that's, that's not good theology either. Um, that we are, to, we are to worship God in spite of our circumstances, in all and every circumstance. And so he, he does make um, some really bad theological decisions here. Uh, he, he's clearly all over the board. He's, and, and the only place he's not is correct. He's not in the right place with, with his theology. And so... Um, and then he, he makes a final mistake in, in his vow, and that's just in the vagueness uh, with which he makes the vow, the vagueness with which he describes what the offering, what the burnt offering is going to be. Um, it is, it's most likely, the reason we kind of looked at whatever, whoever, it's most likely that he didn't think of a person when he said, I will offer a person up for it's most likely that he expected some kind of livestock to be what came out first. Um, in, it was customary in their homes for one of the rooms to be of livestock. It would not be a weird thing for um, some form of livestock coming out the door. Um, and so it's most likely that's what he thought, but there is, there is still the openness that he could have meant truly what, whatever or whoever in, in that scenario. But regardless of what he intended, um, he certainly didn't intend for his daughter to be the one who walks out, for her to be the first one out the door. And that's exactly what happens. She comes out celebrating, greeting him in victory from where he had been. And immediately he remembers the vow and is, of course, he's overcome with grief. Um, that he doesn't really spend any time thinking about how do, I, how do I change the game, how do I change the rules. He just falls apart because he knows he is going to lose his daughter in this burnt offering that he has to follow through. Now the, the passage here makes a couple of 
it highlights a few things about her. We don't know a whole lot about her, um, but she was most likely fairly young, right? She was a virgin. She had not. She was not. She had not been married. She hadn't had a chance to have children. Those are kind of the emphasis that we have. That she didn't have much time to to live. Um, that she hadn't experienced some of those things. And so for her, it seems like a, her disappointment is that she doesn't have the opportunity to fulfill the roles that that God has placed for her, to, whether they're to be a, a mother or a wife or, or those things. She doesn't get to experience those things. Um, for him, the, the problem, of course, besides just the pain of losing, uh, losing a daughter, is also his line. That's his only child. So that's his lineage, that there's not going to be any further uh, of his lineage if she, if she is gone. Um, but, but primarily what we see there is her her innocence, if you will. Of course, not, not in the sense that she's innocent before God, but she is, she's young. She's just not had an opportunity to experience the things that God could have laid out for her. And so <clears throat> she's going to pay for the foolishness of her father. She's going to have to pay the price. And so she's allowed to take two months and go away and essentially mourn with her friends, uh, mourn that she didn't get to experience the things that life had to offer her. And at the end, faithfully, um, being faithful to her father, she returns. And, and this, this is where the narrator just gets real short. Right? We, get no, we get no detail. This is nothing, at least the description-wise, it's nothing like when Abraham um, thought he was going to sacrifice Isaac. There's tons of description there, most likely because we knew the ending. We knew what was going to happen. Here, there's, there's none of that. The, the phrasing is, Jephthah did with her according to his vow that he had made. And that's it. So the assumption there being he followed through. He offered his daughter as a burnt offering. Uh, Owen, Owen told you guys you know, a few weeks ago before we, before we started in this part of the book, this is where it gets more difficult. right? This is where it gets yeah, weird for one thing, very dark. It's going to continue. Um, the darkness is going to get, to get worse. For, for believers who are called to study the word, there, there are unfortunately, there are camps of theologians out there that people and, and theologians who would seek um, to look at scripture and to find alternative interpretations, right? They would, they would look to find other ways um, to interpret scripture basically just to, to make them more palatable, to make them not as, not as harsh, not as violent, um, to make them more in line with culture and the, and the changes and the context that, that we're in. Um, for us and, and for, the, for the true believer, I think that, is, that method of interpretation is damaging to us truly getting a picture of, of who God is. It's not easy, but we don't, we don't have to apologize for the difficult parts of Scripture. We don't have to hide from them. We don't have to pretend that they don't exist, right? Because they're highlighting, they're always highlighting one or two of two things, and, and usually both at the same time, but that is the, the immense depravity of man and the great goodness of God. That the more we understand just how far an evil man's heart can go, the more we understand how big of a deal it is that God would come down and redeem us. That he would give us assurance of our salvation, like we sang earlier. And so it's uncomfortable. 
for us to read and, and know a story like this, but it makes much of who God is, and so we do. And, and it is, it's just really difficult to find any other interpretation here besides what we actually think it is, that he offered his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Now, in that, an important question comes to mind that, that we need to address. Um, Jephthah had made a vow to God. Making vows in general is a, is a serious affair. And we don't throw that word around lightly. It only comes up in a few very important scenarios, much less a vow to God. Right? That, that's a big deal. So the question is, should he have kept the vow? Was he, was he held to, to do what he said he was going to do? The clear answer, if you look elsewhere in Scripture, the answer is no. He absolutely should not have kept this vow. Um, he should not have followed through um, with that. Basically, a vow that results in sin is, is invalid. God, God does not take part in vows that involve sin. He's, he will not agree to be the other half of, of, of a vow like that. It's, it's a totally invalid vow. It never pleases God to choose evil. It never pleases God to sin. So in, in no way, shape, or form was it pleasing to God that he would sacrifice his daughter. Right? The mistake, the, or the original mistake was in the nature of the vow. So really what we would say he should have done here was recognize his mistake, repent, and worship God in a way that we know is faithful. That, that should have been his, his response, not to follow through with it. So what happens when we do see that he follows through is we, we, we are shown two horrific truths about, about who he is and who he is in his heart. The first is that he's a pagan. Right, if a non-pagan would have come across this situation and you know, the, the daughter walks out and they realize the scenario they're in, they, they would have understood they made a mistake in their wording. They made a mistake in, in making a vow like that to the Lord and they would have found another way to be faithful. Right? Only a pagan, someone who, had, who was practiced in worshiping other idols, other idols who do participate or at least their, their teaching participates in human sacrifice, only a pagan would consider that a, an appropriate option, an appropriate action, right? That, vows of, of human sacrifice have been uh, referenced in other belief systems. Um, they, they can find them in, in old documents, specifically to Baal. They, they can be found as well. And so he must have been so caught up in that culture of, of idol worship and worshiping Baal um, that he would think that that was an appropriate move. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see about his heart is that he is, he is selfish beyond measure. Like he is absolutely selfish because given that he does follow through, it is, it is true of him to say that he was willing to kill his daughter in exchange for the spoils of his victory, the deal he had made to be the ruler to be given the authority. Um, otherwise, he would, have, he would have not done it. He would have said, God, whatever punishment I need for not, not keeping my end of the vow, bring, bring that, but I'm not willing to trade my daughter for all of those things. And so we, we, we just see this very ugly picture into his heart. He has two months to think this over, to change his mind, and he doesn't. 
he, he, he follows through. And so, like I said, in this, in this darkness, we have to be able to pull what is, the, what is the purpose, what is the reasoning for this. And so, really briefly, I want us to walk through just a few lessons, lessons that we learn from Jephthah, from his, uh, from his plight. And the first is that we should seek God first in all things. That we should consider the will and the leadership of God every day of our lives. So in the earliest part of this story, we see that the men are making plans that made sense to men. They weren't appealing to God or his wisdom in any way. They were just making their own plans. And they land on this warrior. They decided, we need, we need a warrior. We need a, you know, a battle-hardened guy. Um, and that's what they got. And they got nothing more. They got nothing more than a warrior. He made foolish decisions. He made no effort to restore Israel uh, to worshiping the true God. Um, eventually, he allows his pride and his foolishness to, um, to have more battles with other Israelites. He makes mistake after mistake because all they got was what they thought made sense. They weren't considering God. That is the, that's the height of arrogance. To go day by day by day and not consider the things of God. So if we're going throughout our days, we're essentially saying, God, I don't need you. And that's what they were saying here. James 4 says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It is evil for us to live daily without considering the things of God, without seeking him first, without remembering we are his servants. We live in submission and in humility under him. Jephthah forgot that. He cared only about himself and what circumstance he might have. Something that, if, if any of you are new to Emmaus within the last few years, something that Owen does um, with new members is we have a lunch. It's called Discover Emmaus. And you get to come and essentially he kind of lays out all the things and the hows and whys of, of Emmaus and what we do. And at one point he, he talks about the leadership of the church. How is it structured and how does it, how does it work? And something that he says every time that he includes every single time when he talks about the head of the church, the leadership of the church, it's Christ. It's Jesus every single time. And, and of course, we're all here, we're like, we kind of roll your eyes, yeah, we know that, and who really runs the church, you know? No, it's Jesus. It's Christ. He is intentional about making that point every single time because Jephthah proves it is really easy to forget that. If we just start coasting, we don't consider those things, we forget he is our head. He leads us. He guides us. Uh, we must say things like, if the Lord wills, um, because it reminds us of where we are. The second thing um, is that we should fight, and I talked about this earlier, but we should fight to keep man-made foolishness out of our God-given faith. These two things can very easily come together and confuse our faith. Jephthah at times knew God was in control. At, at times he he has a, enough faith sprinkled over his life for him to make a couple of good decisions. But the problem becomes he's, he's letting that faith convince him that he's being faithful in all the foolishness he's taking a part in. 
right? He, he thinks because I'm faithful in this tiny area that everything else I'm doing is, is fine and is okay. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we like that? Are we only using God at times when it's convenient and, and the rest of the time we're only involved in our own uh, desires and our own wants? This, this happens in, in many churches and you even see it in, in, in pastors and teachings and things like that. They get further and further away from true orthodoxy. And it's because there's just enough good on there to make it sound good. It sounds nice. And there's a half a scripture there and a half a scripture here. But really what's happening is they're doing what they want and they're just sprinkling, they're, they're kind of pasting that fake faith on top of it so that it looks okay. And yet it's, it's not true. It's not what God has intended. And so we have to get in the habit of, of evaluating everything. And first and foremost, ourselves. In our own hearts, are, are we truly listening to what God says? Um, that that are, we, are we listening to what God, or excuse me, who God is um, as defined by Western Christianity? Or are we, are we looking at who God is as defined by his word? And so when we look at our lives, we have to, we have to see that we acted in accordance to what we said. That's what, that's what proves that it's our faith that's guiding us and not our foolishness. And then the, the last point I want to make very briefly um, is ensuring that you speak accurately about God. As believers, we're, as Jim mentioned earlier, we are, we are called to tell others about God. But if we do so in a way that is not true, that is not faithful to his description in the word, we've done damage, right? So when, when Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, he spoke for God. He speaks of God and speaks for him. He made a statement. If you don't understand the whole context, context, you don't understand. He makes a statement that God would be pleased with his human sacrifice. That's a lie. It's, it, it's not true. And yet, even today, if you get into an argument with somebody who doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, this is, this is a story that is commonly referred to. To say, you agree with the Bible, there's human sacrifice in there. God... God allows and commends human sacrifice. Well, that's not true. This is a, this is a story of sin happening, but, but God's not for it. He's not okay with it. And so we, we have to be incredibly careful that when we talk about God, when we say things like God is this way or God is that way or, or God told me this, God told me that, those are not, those are not bad ways to start a sentence, but they're, but they're really dangerous if you're not careful with what's in the next half. right? And so our only choice is to, is to cling Cling hard to the word of God. First, know it and know it well, and then don't, don't stray from it. Stay as close as you can to it so that people get an accurate description about God when you, when you talk to them. So last thing, just an illustration of why this is so important. Um, the, the easiest illustration I can think of is that of the, the prosperity gospel. Right? You have... Prosperity gospel preachers out there talking about God in a way that's, that's not accurate. So they would say, and I'm, obviously I'm going to simplify it, but they, they would say, if you have enough faith, you'll get a promotion. Well, what happens when you have faith and you don't get that promotion? That, that person, that, they might string them along to do that a few times, but eventually that person is going to make a conclusion. And that conclusion usually is God is bad. God did not fulfill his promise to me. God is, God's not for me. I don't, I don't need him. 
But the problem is that God is not bad. It's the theology that's bad. But they don't ever blame that guy. They blame the guy he was talking about. They blame God. And so for us, we have to protect what we say about God, ensure that we're not saying things that are inaccurate about him. So seek his word. Know those things. So that's our challenge from Jephthah in a very short uh, amount of time, that we are to seek God, consider him every day, thank him every day that you woke up and that you're still a Christian, right? Fight to keep that foolishness, to keep your own foolishness from, from tainting the faith that he has given you, and then ensure that you know God well and that you speak of him well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. Again, I, I pray that we would understand and, and embrace and see the depth of our depravity to know that we are, we are at risk for the same things that we see happening uh, in, in the life of the Israelites and in the judges. So God, I pray that we would take that as a, as a warning, that we would not just glance past it as if that could never happen to us. I pray that we would take that warning seriously and respond by trusting in you, by claiming the truth and the promises that you have given us, the assurance that you give us of our salvation. I pray that we would walk carefully but confidently in the light of your will as outlined by godly counsel, by time in prayer and fasting, by time in your word. I pray that we would leave here with an encouraged sense of, of urgency um, in knowing you so that we might tell others about you. God, I, I thank you that, that one day we will look in our sins, all of our sins, not just a part, but all of our sins will be nailed to the cross. And we thank you for the sacrifice that was paid so that might happen. So it's in your son's name we pray.